Welcome to the Your Grandma Remembers This podcast. This week, we'll be diving into the life of Frank Sinatra. The information in this episode was found in the unauthorized biography of Frank Sinatra by Katie Kelly called His Way. A quick disclaimer, this book is called Unauthorized because Frank Sinatra didn't want it to be written and actually tried to sue to stop his publishing, but the court determined that the book could be published under free speech. The reason for Sinatra's outrage was that this book covers many of the more unseemly parts of his career, and because anyone can look up a quick biography of his life, this podcast will be covering his life, flaws, and all. Francis Albert Sinatra was born in Hoboken, New York, December 12, 1915 to two Italian immigrant parents. At this time, Hoboken was a much different place than it is today. The town was made up of three ruling classes. The Germans were the highest on the totem pole, next came the Irish, and at the bottom were the Italians. The Italians lived in the part of the town called Little Italy, where many immigrants lived in tenements, speaking Italian, sharing food, and staying separate from their upper-class counterparts across the city. Those who despised them called them WAPs, a name that came from the letters stamped on many Italian immigrants' papers on Ellis Island, meaning without papers. Little Italy was also separated into its northern section and southern section. In the north lived the more wealthy Italians, who wanted their kids to advance in school and go to the technical college right outside of town, while in the south lived the poor Italians who didn't encourage their kids to do any better than they had. This split is what affected Natalie and Tony Sinatra, Frank's parents. Natalie, or Dolly, was from southern Little Italy, and her parents didn't approve of her boxing boyfriend, Tony Sinatra, also known as Marty. Dolly, though, didn't care what her parents wanted her to do, and the two eloped. Dolly was determined to become an upper-class lady and worked diligently to make this happen. She started by introducing herself as Mrs. O'Brien, especially when in the company of Irish people, and used her loud mouth to her ability to not be intimidated by anyone to gain the trust of the community, which often came to her with their troubles in, with public officials. Marty was her polar opposite and was willing to let her lead the household completely. For being a burly boxer, he was extremely terrified of the verbal onslaught he received from his wife. Almost four months after Frank's birth, America joined World War I and the landscape of Hoboken changed forever. The Germans became the hated group and fled for areas where they wouldn't be targeted. The Irish moved up in the ranks to first class, and Italians flocked to Hoboken and became more accepted there. They still received the usual criticism for being immigrants, and they pressured themselves to conform to the American culture to stay safe from scrutiny. Dolly was promoted to the official interpreter, which meant that for every immigrant she helped to get papers, she, should al- she could also help them vote for the democratic political machine that was present, which gave her more political power. This power, though, couldn't save her brother from being sent to jail for 10 years for murder. Dolly also worked as a midwife, and she worked in the ice cream parlor to compensate for Marty being out of work after breaking both of his wrists. This meant that Frank was often left with Dolly's mother or babysitter. Frank was a mama's boy, but he much preferred his loving grandmother to his strict mother who could be very harsh. Dolly then used her growing political power to get her husband a job at the Irish-dominated fire department and his cousin Vincent a job at the docks. She collected all of Vincent's paychecks, as well as making him work cleaning her house. With the strict tab she kept on him, he never married and cleaned the house until he died. They then moved to an apartment outside Little Italy, and Dolly worked her hardest to seem like the richest family there. She often bought Frank nice clothes, as well as buying him friends. He took on this trait of spending constantly, and was able to keep his first girlfriend around for a while because of all the gifts he bought her. When the Great Depression rolled around, many of Frank's friends were struggling, but not him. They bought a nice large house and furnished it, 
and invited people over to have parties. Dolly enjoyed partying and drinking, of which Frank was embarrassed. And around this time, Dolly started performing illegal abortions, of which Frank was also embarrassed. Dolly had always wanted her son to go to college, but he dropped out of high school after a few months. To compensate, Frank started dressing like an educated man, and he also started singing in public. He started singing for an orchestra at the Wednesday School Dances, and despite previously hating his obsession with Bing Crosby and singing, his mother bought him a PA system so that he could loan it out to orchestras that would let him sing. She then got him a job at the Union Club in 1935 when he was 20. After this, he started being the chauffeur for the group The The Three Flashes, and after his mom convinced them to let him appear in blackface in one of the short movies they filmed, they finally let let him join the group, which became the Hoboken Four. The group went on tour and had a a lot of success, despite their goofing off and almost getting fired. Frank was becoming more popular with the girls that attended, which made his bandmates Tambi and Skelly jealous, so much so that they started bullying and, and abusing him whenever they felt like it, which made Frank quit and return to Hoboken. He started hounding every singing establishment he could find, as well as going out with what would become his first wife, Nancy Barbato, whom Dolly liked a lot because her family was upper class. He was so desperate for a job that he went to a singing coach, despite his growing ego, for a few months until his mom got him a job as a singing waiter at the Rustic Cabin, where he got radio airtime once a week. The next woman he dated before returning to Nancy was Tony Frank, who actually got pregnant, and he almost married her, but she had a miscarriage, and the relationship fell apart due to that, and the fact that Frank's mom hated her because she was lower class. His mom pressured him to marry Nancy, and they did on February 4th, 1939, in the company of all of Dolly's new upper-class friends, and none of Frank's old Hoboken ones. They both looked unhappy that day, and Nancy cried walking down the aisle. Nancy and Frank were making a combined $200 a month, not a small sum at that time, but Nancy kept a tight budget, which made them even more comfortable despite Frank's constant spending on clothes and friends. Frank spent a lot of time with his friend, Hank Santacola, a former boxer who played piano for him at gigs, which made Nancy jealous of him because she was seeing Frank less and less. Sadly, this would never change. He was still working at the rustic cabin when Harriet James discovered him and offered to triple his salary to $300 a month. He also tried to get his name changed to Frank Satin, but when his mom found out, she demanded that it be Sinatra or O'Brien, but preferably Sinatra. He was starting to get some more radio coverage, but not nearly as much as he needed to be as big as Crosby, and any critique of him would send him into a raging fit. He decided to leave Harry James for an offer from Tommy Dorsey, a famous conductor there that he stayed with for years. He showed up to the first rehearsal with an entourage that included Hank as well as a friend, Nick Savano, who did every errand imaginable for him. This included helping Nancy cope with the fact that Frank was sleeping around with other singers and actresses. He recorded his first hit that pushed him into fame, I'll Never Smile Again, and again other other musicians around him got jealous of the notoriety he was receiving. Women started flocking to his shows and swooning, and soon he replaced Bing Crosby at the top top vocalist spot, which helped him convince Dorsey to give him more solo songs. His decision to leave Dorsey was a hard one that left both of them with hard feelings due to a legal scuffle over a contract that resulted in him never attending Dorsey's funeral 14 years later. With World War II in full swing in 1942, entertainment was in high demand. Frank's first gig was a last-minute booking at the Paramount Theater, where everyone was surprised when girls started screaming when he walked out on stage. After this, Nick Savano hired Frank a new press manager named George Evans, who sprung into action immediately. 
He hired 12 girls who he trained to swoon loudly while Frank was performing, and he taught Frank how to caress the mic to make the girls go even crazier. He handed out free tickets to youngsters around the town to the couple-week-long stint at the Paramount and alerted the press to the impending event, and it did not disappoint. The next day, the paper showed pictures of girls being carried out on stretchers, quote, in a swoon. Twelve girls had been hired, but thirty fainted. From there, Frank's fame only grew. Evans helped paint his childhood as that of an American dream. No longer was he a wealthy kid whose friends were bought. He was a poor kid singing on the streets for money. No longer was he a high school dropout. He went all the way through high school and was even part of the Glee Club, a fiction that is still repeated in biographies today. His mom was a loudmouth abortion provider who worked with politicians. She was an ex-World War I nurse, a story that she loved. He even helped Nancy try to become the glamorous woman that Frank desired. And then he helped Frank break into a more sophisticated audience, which is what he needed to start playing for nightclubs. Frank got a gig at a New York City nightclub called the Rio Bamba, and by the end of the three weeks gig, it was completely packed. Frank returned to the Paramount to be met by a pandemonium of people screaming and breaking things. Frank thrived on the criticism he received from psychologists, police, and teachers who called his singing a kind of musical drug. He got a review stating that the chaos was nothing more than war hysteria, and this, coupled with the mounting criticism around him of not being drafted, led Evans to send him to entertain for those helping the war effort and raise money for war bond rallies. He then got called up for the draft, but was rejected as 4F because of a hole in his eardrum that he had since birth. He became more arrogant than before, which is a feat, and started to treat the people around him badly, so much so that people close to him started calling him the monster and George Evans Frankenstein. One of Frank's many loves was boxing. He grew up around boxers, including his dad and uncles, but he could never participate himself because he was too scrawny. This made him very respectful of those who could fight, and he tried to surround himself with boxers. This led him to go to fights at Mar- Madison Square Garden often with his entourage, which people called the Varsity. This is where Frank interacted with many of the bob- mob bosses that he also looked up to. While Frank was busy watching boxing, Nancy was at home wondering why her husband hadn't come home yet. This was a reoccurring theme, and Nancy often took out her frustration on members of the Varsity. She even convinced Frank to fire his longtime friend and assistant, Nick Savano, who had been with him since 1939. Because of his newfound fame and riches, people came to him constantly asking for help. Tamby, the man who had bullied him when he was in the Hoboken Four, even came back pleading for a job or even to let him use his name for a year. But Frank didn't budge and kicked him out of his dressing room. Not before Tammy threw him against the wall like he used to, though. He continued to play for Sophisticates and got a gig at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, one of the most famous hotels in the world. He almost bailed on the show due to his nerves, but he ended up going, doing the show and got some good reviews about how his voice was actually very nice. Now that her son was high society, Dolly Sinatra was reaping the benefits. She had him play for one of the mayoral candidates in the political machine, and she quickly became the biggest celebrity in town. On top of the money and gifts Frank sent, she rarely even had to pay her bills anymore. In the end, psychologists determined that all of the ruckus around him was due in part to the war, but also because of something a little less obvious. Frank embodied the perfect American dream. He was just a kid from Hoboken who had made it big and could be an inspiration to the kids that idolized him. He was sweet, sincere, nice, quiet, shy family guy that had made it to 
from the bottom and risen to the top of the charts, and it was all the girls could do but worship him. And George Evans was doing all he could to keep that facade up. At the beginning of 1944, Frank and Nancy, who already had one child named Nancy Jr., had another child named Frank Jr., which was an attempt to save their marriage. But Frank couldn't even be there, so George had three dozen roses sent with a picture of Frank, so when the press arrived, they would be greeted with a picture of a nice, happy family. They moved to California with their kids, and Nancy was ecstatic to get further away from Hoboken and to the West Coast, where, following his first film, From Here to Eternity, Frank was going to be making a million dollars that year. Frank was then invited to have tea with President Roosevelt, which his mother hated because Roosevelt didn't particularly like Italians, although not as much as he hated Germans. Roosevelt even became an honorary member of one of his fan clubs, and in return, Frank donated $5,000 to his campaign and told his fans to tell their parents to vote for him. Frank returned to the Paramount Theater to even more pandemonium than before. There were many boys that laughed at and enjoyed the hysterics, but one was fed up and chucked an egg at his face. Inspired by this, some sailors became, began throwing tomatoes at Frank's photos because many were angry that this skinny singing kid was getting more attention from girls than they were. But despite the few who were annoyed, most of the young people were enchanted by him. He continued to make it hard on Evans by skipping out on an interfaith rally he was supposed to speak at in Boston. To make up for it, Evans scheduled a tour of high schools to talk about staying in school. He also started bashing any critic he had in the press and even attacked one of the most powerful columnists in the country, named Westbrook Pregler, who proceeded to reveal that before he was married to Nancy, Frank's ex-girlfriend reported on a morals charge twice, and so Evans told Frank he needed to stop antagonizing him. In 1945, Frank's draft status was reevaluated, and he was put under the classification of 2AF, a new classification for entertainers that said their work in the U.S. was crucial. This sparked many many angry letters to the editor, including one that reported that girls were threatening to take their lives if Frank was enlisted. His status of 4F was quickly reinstated. In response to the backlash, Evan planned a tour of Army and Navy hospitals and a trip overseas. They made a plan to make Frank seem like the underdog so that the troops would like him, and it worked. He got good press until his return when he started criticizing the USO for their handling of troop entertainment minutes after getting off the plane. So then came the bad press. In response to this, Evan organized a tolerance crusade where Sinatra spoke on racial equality and his hatred of the way people treated him and other Italians and encouraged young people to be tolerant of all of other races. He even starred in the, fi- in the short film, The House I Live In, which Sinatra teaches religious and racial tolerance to a gang of kids, which was applauded by critics. This led him to Indiana, to give a speech to a high school that was protesting the principal because he had allowed 270 black students into the school. Frank already had a speech planned out for him, but he went off of it berating the adults in the town who had instigated the protest, while also gaining the respect of all the students by being down to earth. He ended by having everyone repeat a tolerance pledge and sing the national anthem, and despite the rage of the mayor, he received the first scroll presented by the Bureau of Intercultural Education and many other awards as well. But not everyone was pleased with this effort. The country was in the midst of a Red Scare in which many of people in Hollywood were being attacked for allegedly being communist, and his tolerance crusade put Frank right in the limelight. Frank, though, claimed to be a sincere liberal that cared about the little guy. But in his personal life, this was far from the truth. He seemed to enjoy stomping on the little guy, 
which helped him compensate for his lack of physical toughness, and he continued to admire people like Ben Bugsley Siegel, a self-described businessman who had been indicted for murder in 1940 and almost worshipped the aura of danger around him. In 1946, Frank signed with MGM Studios and showed up with an entourage and a list of MGM actresses that he desired, and by the end of his time there, he had crossed almost everyone off. He was written up numerous times for not showing up, refusing to work, or just being difficult, and when a couple of reporters wrote about it, they both received nasty telegrams that threatened them. He complained constantly about the unfairness of the press, who named him the least cooperative actor. Then... Frank walked out on Nancy and went to parties with MGM actress Lana Turner, so Evans was forced to announce that they were separated. The press accused Lana of breaking up their marriage. Two weeks later, he performed, and Nancy was there, and after an emotional exchange, they danced and made up. On February 11, 1947, Frank made a trip to Cuba to visit mob boss Charlie, or Lucky, Luciano, with whom he partied, gambled, and ate, and after one article was published about it, the United States immediately cut off all narcotic drug, drug shipments and arrested Luciano. His next bad press stint was with Lee Mortimer, who had previously taken many shots at him. When Frank saw him at a nightclub and when he went outside with singer Kay Kino, the varsity held him down while Frank pummeled him, screaming that he would kill him the next time he saw him. Him and Evans went on a journey to try and cover up and obscure the story by saying Lee had instigated it. When Lee tried to press charges, he received two threatening phone calls that said he needed to stop or he would be killed. MGM got involved, and in the end, they settled with Frank, paying Lee $9,000. Thankfully for him, Frank was able to convince one of the largest papers to stop printing broad stories about him, and he got back to work at MGM. It was around this time that Frank's movies started bombing, and he decided to start doing musical shorts again. But during rehearsals, he refused to be decent and was also always goofing off and being awful to the other actors. It was there that he became fascinated with Ava Gardner. Nancy, seemingly on the other side of the world, tried to keep their marriage together, and while Frank would send her gifts to relieve his conscience, he was never discreet about his affairs. George Evans was working overtime to keep him in line and got right to work when Frank called him and said that he and Ava Gardner had shot up a town, literally, with 238s. George was, George was able to get the situation under control, and the story never got up to the press, but Evans continued to plead with Frank to stop seeing Ava. And then, George's most prolific, profitable client of nine years, whose career he had helped build, fired him, all over Ava Gardner. Ava was the most beautiful girl Frank had ever seen, and within a short time, he was madly in love with her. She disliked him at first, but eventually the pair grew to like each other, but the relationship was never a smooth one. They fought bitterly, loudly, and without any shame, and their many similarities meant that their anger was almost combustible. Eva was angry that Frank was taking so long to get a divorce, so she would taunt him with other men, and then Frank would go to his mobster friends to try to get them to help him out. With Evans out of the picture, there was no one to take on the press and no one to stop him from self-destructing. By 1949, Sinatra was no longer topping the charts, nor was he hitting the middle of the charts, and Bing Crosby finally went ahead of him after six years. Frank was running out of offers fast, but he was consumed with being in love with Ava. When Nancy refused to give him a divorce, Frank walked out again, but this time it was final, and the couple had to announce their official separation. Ava and Frank were by no means healthy for each other. 
In one instance, after a large fight, Frank called Ava and left his suicide note, followed by two gunshots that left Ava screaming from the party she was at. Turns out, he was only shooting into the mattress at his hotel to scare her. MCA, Frank's agency, finally dropped him, and Frank was out of lots of work and out of money as well. Nancy had been temporarily awarded all of Frank's property, and she wouldn't finalize their divorce because she hoped that by keeping his money, it would motivate Frank to come back to her. Ava, angry that she, he still hadn't gotten a divorce, retaliated by spending lots of time with her co-star, and soon after this, Frank was stuck, sh- struck by hysterical aphonia, which made him not be able to sing because it strangled his vocal cords. Desperate for work, Frank asked his mafia friends to let him play their clubs. Shortly after this, the government was in the middle of a crackdown on mob activity and brought Frank in for questioning about his trip to Cuba. And even though he didn't seem innocent, the detectives, who had agreed to not tell the press about the interview, decided that he wasn't guilty enough to to charge him, and he wasn't being very helpful, so they sent him on his way. Frank then starred in the disaster of a project, Meet Danny Wilson, which people said was too similar to Frank's own life, but not good enough. Filming the movie was also a pain because Frank was being extremely difficult, getting into fights with actors constantly. Ava gave Frank an ultimatum. She told him that she was going to stop seeing him until he was a free man, and then Nancy finally said she was ready to file for divorce, but didn't for a very long time. Ava and Frank then went to Mexico for a vacation, but reporters thought they were trying to get a quick Mexican divorce. So, when they showed up in Mexico, Frank tried to run them down with his car, but he only scraped one reporter's leg. Days later, Ava and Frank got into another huge fight, and when Ava returned to Hollywood, Frank overdosed on sleeping pills and had to be rushed to the hospital. Finally, a few weeks later, Frank's divorce was finalized, and he immediately called reporters who were waiting for him newspaper bums. After this, Ava and Frank were finally able to get married, and despite calling it off once, they finally did with a few friends and family members present. While Frank's career was failing, Ava's was soaring, and Frank was feeling emasculated by it. She hated having his friends around and wasn't acting like the good Italian wife that Frank thought he wanted, and it seemed to him that he was the only one actually trying in their marriage. Ava did try to help him salvage his career by forcing people that signed contracts with her to sign Frank along with her, as well as encouraging him to issue an apology to the press for how he had treated them in the past, which was surprising to many people because he had never apologized. Because Frank was so miserable, beaten down, and insecure, he made everyone around him miserable, especially Ava. They were getting into huge fights in front of people, which included throwing things at each other. The one gig Frank really wanted was a chance to star as Maggio in the film From Here to Eternity, and he did everything he could to get the director to cast him. This would be his first role where he didn't sing, and he desperately needed one gig that would help to push him over the top, and it was an added bonus that he fit the character perfectly. So Ava went to the director's wife and asked her to convince her husband to let Frank have the role. Ava wasn't the only one handing the director, Harry Cohen, Frank had everyone he knew asking him to give him the part, and finally he said he would allow him to run a test for it. At this time, he and Ava were in Africa while Ava was shooting a film while also being pregnant, and Frank had to fly back and forth to do testing, but he did so willingly, and they were actually impressed with the quality of his test. After some deliberation and their first option dropping out, they finally chose Frank for the role. 
The press speculated that Frank had pulled a godfather to get the part, but Cohen assured them that he wouldn't have let that happen. Ava was falling out of love with Frank day by day, and she decided to have an abortion because she couldn't stand the idea of having Frank's child. Meanwhile, Frank was in America, constantly talking about how in love he was with her and how beautiful she was. Frank was on the best behavior as possible while he was on set, and there was only one large conflict during filming. Frank was humble enough to ask for acting help from others who, who on, others on set who became his close friends, specifically Montgomery Clift, who spent lots of time with him, running the script, and drinking with him. Finally, the film was released, and with Frank's career riding on this last effort, the film killed at the box office, with critics loving it and thinking that he did an amazing job. Now that Sinatra was no longer dependent on Ava, she started to not love him even more, and so she told him she wanted a divorce right after he had just spilled his heart out to a friend about how much he loved her. After this, he grew depressed about Ava and even tried to commit suicide at one point by slashing his wrists. After this, Georgie Wood was hired to keep him company and keep him alive. His music morphed into sad, soulful music that resonated with other men in the same situation as him. He signed with Capitol Records, who paired him with more placid people that let him run the show his own way and helped push him to the top again. He came out with a new long-play vinyl record, Come Fly, Away from, Come Fly Away With Me, songs for swingin' lovers, as well as the hit, hit single, Young at Heart. This new success didn't mean he was over Ava, though. He couldn't stand to be alone and moved his friend Jules Stein into his apartment, but eventually he asked him to move out because he told the press all about the night's where he would be drinking and staring at pictures of Ava. One night, he went from staring at it to smashing it, to collecting the pieces and giving the pizza guy his gold watch for finding one. He went to many women for comfort, who knew that they were just replacements for Ava, but wanted to make him happy. The success of From Here to Eternity brought Frank lots of work and even received an Oscar for his role. He stayed busy to fight his depression and was able to buy shares of the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, where his mafia connections allowed him to become a multimillionaire. The Sands became his kingdom, and he finally reclaimed a spot at the most, as the most popular male vocalist in 1954. While he still had problems with the press and people in general, he started to make up for it by sending those that he hurt, or just those who were hurting, expensive gifts to make up for his wrongdoings, which helped the press overlook some of his flaws. By the 60s, he was back on top after a brief stint of unpopularity. He was part of the Rat Pack, made up of Sammy J Davis Jr., Dee Martin, Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop. The five men starred in multiple movies together, including Ocean's Eleven. In 1966, he married Mia Farrow, whom he started dating when she was 19 years old. They divorced two years later. His daughter Nancy Jr. started a singing career with the feminist anthem, These Boots Are Made For Walking and she and her father recorded their duet, Something Stupid, which was in the number one spot for four weeks. He retired briefly in the 70s, but returned with the song, Old Blue Eyes is Back. He continued his liber liberalism by campaigning for John F. Kennedy and actually running his inauguration gala. Then, he became a Republican and supported Nixon and Reagan, who awarded him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1985. In 1976, he married Barbara Blakely Marks, and they stayed married until he died. He played his last concert in 1995 at the Palm Desert Marriott Ballroom, and on May 14, 1998, at 82 years old, Francis Albert Sinatra died of a heart attack. 
After learning all of these things about Frank Sinatra, it's easy to come to the conclusion that he was a terrible person, or at least someone who is extremely flawed, whose music might be able to be boycotted. I'm not saying he wasn't a bad person, but that we should consider that he wasn't alone in Hollywood. He had plenty of company and the many terrible things he did. But if we boycott every person who's done something wrong, we wouldn't be talking to anyone. So, on that note, here's a little Frank Sinatra and Nancy Jr. singing Something Stupid. 